Revelation 18, good evening. That's where we are tonight. Good to see everybody. Turn there, please, if you would, in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 18. And if you need a Bible, these guys have Bibles to hand out. So take one from them. They don't read them. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, back down. Look, stop. Back. Go. That was not nice. Oh, I was feeling frisky. I'm sorry. I just... Get a little unfrisky. All right. So uh, raise your hand if you'd like a, a Bible tonight. Uh, hey, we're talking about death and destruction. Let's lighten it up a little bit, shall we? <laughs> Revelation 18 is where we are. Now... Up to this point, talking about chapter 17 and 18 together, because we need to understand these chapters together. They are both having to do with Babylon. Uh, there are some dual chapters throughout the Bible that speak about Babylon. In fact, interesting point, by the way, Babylon is mentioned more times than any other city in the Bible except for Jerusalem. So it is significant, this particular city. Uh, we read about it in dual chapters, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and Revelation 17 and 18. So that's what we're talking about tonight, Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14. We'll read a little bit from Isaiah 13 tonight, but otherwise you can go home and read these chapters. And then also Jeremiah 50 and 51, and then here we have Revelation 17 and 18. Last week we talked about spiritual Babylon in chapter 17, and tonight we're going to talk about commercial Babylon in chapter 18. Basically, what we have is the spiritual Babylon is the world religious system. It's a false religious system. But we talked about how the root of all false religions came out of Babylon. And we, I took you last week back into Genesis 9, 10, and 11 gave you the history of idolatry that came out of Babylon, the Tower of Babel, Babel, uh, the ancient city, the ancient name of Babylon. And then throughout Scripture, Babylon is also referred to as the uh, Plain of Shinar. And um, then in more recent history, we, we talk about it in terms of Mesopotamia. And then in modern times, we talk about it in terms of Iraq. So that's the region we're talking about. And when Man uh, purposely and intentionally rebelled against God's plan to populate the earth and to spread it and to basically make him known. And, and there we read in Genesis how man got together and said, you know, let's, let's build ourselves a tower. And their ideal was to worship the starry hosts. And so idolatry and paganism originated in the ancient city of Babylon. So what happens during this tribulation period? You've got Christians now removed at the beginning, if you believe as I do, the pre-tribulation position of the Bible. Revelation 4, we see the church removed. We don't see the church again mentioned until the end of the book of Revelation. And it's during this time now, these seven years of tribulation, and the, the greatest part of it is the latter part of the seven years, where if Christianity is removed because believers are gone, they've been taken to heaven, they've been rescued uh, that it was not God's will we should suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that as it was in the days of Lot and in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And in both instances, those are great Old Testament biblical examples Jesus gave us of how the righteous were rescued from the day of judgment. So if then Christians are gone, believers are removed from the earth, you, you have a huge vacuum now. And into that vacuum will rush all kinds of aberrant uh, theologies and uh, religious worldviews. And of course... If, if things stay on course as they are now, the predominant false religion will be Islam because even now it just barely tra- uh, trails Christianity in terms of the number of those who profess to be Muslims versus the number of those who profess to be Christians. And so now Christians are being re- have been removed from the earth, so the greatest, the, the most prevalent form of false religion is going to be Islam. And again, I said this last week about how you can even take a look at the symbol of Islam, which is the crescent moon and the star. And why is that? Because the origins of, of all pagan religions and all idolatry is Babylon. And that's where they originally worshipped the stars and the moon and, the, and, and uh, the sun. And so even when you consider the history of Islam, there's Muhammad in, in the early 7th century, and he goes to the Kaaba in Mecca, and he does something that is uh, considered at the time something that, that is blasphemous in nature by the other uh, Arabs who are worshiping multiple gods. And that is that he decides there's only one true God among 360 idols that they worship, and Muhammad selects the moon god. And thus, the whole uh, crescent moon and star is a symbol of Islam. And, and when, he re- when he calls out that one god as his particular supreme god... In Arabic, the term is Allah. That's what it means, supreme God. And he chose the one out of 360 false gods and determined that that is the true God. Now, it's a false religion. And uh, you ask Muslims today if Muhammad chose the moon god from among 360 gods in the Kaaba, and they will look at you like a deer in the headlights, and they will say, that's ridiculous, that isn't true. And, you know, the fact is there are a lot of people who don't know things about their own history. You know, Americans don't know a lot of things about their own history. You know, it just in the context of people who may not know everything about their, you know, the history of whatever they're involved in. So switching gears a little bit from Islam to just American history. I mean, uh, how many of you knew that 29 out of 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence had Bible degrees or seminary degrees? Did you know that? 29 out of 56? And so, you know, sometimes we don't even know our own history that we are a part of. It's no different from Muslims who might be a part of Islam and they don't even necessarily know their own history for, for their own particular uh, religion. And, and so when you think about Babylon, um, it's difficult to know what that, that whole religious world, uh, that world religion will look like. It will, will it be entirely Islam? I don't think so. I think it's going to be an amalgam of a lot of world religions and worldviews and But it's going to take precedence over the world, and the origin of all false religions is Babylon. And so it seems here that John is seeing this uh, revising or revival of ancient Babylon in many ways because that false religious system has permeated uh, world religions even today. And it's going to be carried on into the tribulation period. It's going to be expanded upon. And the Antichrist, it's going to rise on the back of the Antichrist, and he's going to use it for his own purposes, but then... It tells us that he will destroy it. Now, the economic Babylon or commercial Babylon really represents world, a world economic system. And that's what we're going to look at at chapter 18 tonight. And when you consider what 17, chapter 17 versus chapter 18 looks like, 
uh, chapter 17, Spiritual Babylon, is, is entitled Mystery Babylon, the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. That's the title given to us in chapter 17 in verse 5 as it relates to Spiritual Babylon. In chapter 18, Commercial Babylon is simply known as Babylon the Great. We'll see that in verse 2. Um, but what we're talking about here is this world economic system that will emerge, and we'll identify it a little bit as we go further. But, you know, as all of us have become more aware of global economic realities of late because of how fragile things are in, in world economies, uh, I think it's interesting to hear some of the world leaders talk about the globalization of world economies. And it's heading in that direction because what we're reading about in Revelation will one day happen. And if we don't see it happen, it's certainly going to be happening soon because everything is converging. All the streams of uh, world economies are converging into one global economy. And so when America started hitting a recession, whatever, you know, two years ago almost, you know, deep recessions and, you know, AIG and, and all of this and the bankruptcy and stuff that happened and home foreclosures. What happens? What happens is the United States reaches out to the global community because now economies are so interwoven that we become interdependent upon one another. So, you know, I was interested to read this article is actually about a year old. It's from 2009 when the G20 summit was happening in London. And I just keyed in on a few things that some of the world leaders said. For example, Gordon Brown, Prime Minister of England, um, spoke so favorably about how the you know, world economies are coming together. And he said this, quote, This is the day that the world came together to fight back against the global recession, not with words, but with a plan for global recovery. I just think it's interesting, the terms that are being used here. Global recovery and for reform and with a clear timetable for its delivery. And then our own president played a role in brokering this agreement, and he said in, in this article I'm reading, he said, quote, I am very proud of what has been done, but this alone is not enough. The actions we take in our individual countries is vital. He added, quote, it's hard for 20 heads of state to bridge their differences. We've all got our own national policies, our own assumptions, and our own politics, but our, listen to this, our citizens are hurting... They need us to come together, end quote. Well, I never asked for all the global economies to come together. I don't know who us is, but anyhow, that's what the president thinks. Listen again, Prime Minister Brown. He pronounced the free market consensus was over, hailing, quote, a new consensus among the largest countries. Quote, Prime Minister Brown, from today, we will together manage the process of globalization. End quote. So we're seeing this happening. The world is moving in this direction. One world government, one world economy. And that's what we're reading about here uh, in Revelation chapter 18. Now a couple of bullet points before we dive into the chapter. When we look at some of the similarities between the spiritual and the commercial Babylon of chapter 17 and 18. Both are under the rule of the Antichrist. Both are ruling like royalty and filled with blasphemy. You'll notice also that both hate and kill God's people, and both are under the judgment of God. So both the spiritual aspect, the, the false world religion that begins to rise on the back of the Antichrist, as well as this economic system that rises globally, 
They both have these things in common. But then as we read here in chapter 18 related to the fall of Babylon, you'll notice that in chapter 17, Babylon is a woman guilty of religious evil. In chapter 18, Babylon is a great city guilty of commercial greed. And then also, when you notice the similarities uh, or differences, in chapter 17, religious Babylon is destroyed by the Antichrist, but in chapter 18, commercial Babylon is destroyed by God. You see, after the religious system serves its purpose, then the Antichrist will destroy it and he himself will be worshipped. So, chapter 17 is more parenthetical for us because it occurs somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. Whereas chapter 18 occurs more chronologically here in the book of Revelation, it happens at the end of the tribulation period just prior to the second coming of Jesus. Because when God destroys economic Babylon, commercial Babylon, He's going to usher in then the second coming of Jesus to the earth and Jesus is going to establish His kingdom then on the earth for that thousand years. And then one more slide and then we'll look at our study together. Identifying Babylon the Great. This is a little tricky. Some Bible scholars look at it as entirely a system. That it is just representative of an economic global system. Some see Babylon the Great as a city. Because in chapter 18... Babylon is specifically mentioned as a city four times. It is called a city four times. And I think that there's truth to both views. That it is a system, but it is also a city. It's, it's considered, I think, a very literal combination of both. And so you can take your preference. I tend to believe, and many others as well believe, that it is both a system, an economic world system, and it is the literal city of Babylon, which means that right now Babylon is just in ruins. Now, Saddam Hussein, before he was captured and then ultimately killed, was on a huge project to rebuild Babylon. It was, it was the jewel of Iraq. Uh, Nebuchadne- uh, um, Saddam Hussein compared himself to the great ancient king Nebuchadnezzar, had a coin minted by the Iraqi government with his profile and Nebuchadnezzar's profile on the same coin. He was very ambitious about rebuilding Babylon. And that means that, and then, you know, the world imposed sanctions, and so economically they were hurt, and then the war took over, and so really the rebuilding never took off. Now, he made a little bit of progress, but it never really materialized, especially the way that he had envisioned, Um, talking about Saddam Hussein. But yet it's going to be rebuilt. It has to be rebuilt because Isaiah prophesies the destruction of Babylon more than just Babylon being overthrown. Now, Babylon was overthrown in 539 B.C. And really since then, it has never been rebuilt. But there's a difference between it being overthrown and it being completely destroyed. It has not yet been destroyed. And in fact, Isaiah talks about a time when it will be uninhabited. And, you know, it's, it's not that it's inhabited today in the sense that people live there, but it is still, you know, somewhat of a... Not that tourism is flourishing in Iraq, obviously, because we're still in the middle of a, of a crisis, but people still go there. They still visit there. Archaeologists still dig there. I mean, you know, there, and there still is some, some movement afoot to rebuild Babylon eventually. But Isaiah talks about its complete destruction. And what Isaiah prophesies, 
about is what we read about in Revelation 18. Now, I'm going to read just a few verses out of Isaiah 13. You can just listen, or if you can quickly find it, you can turn to Isaiah 13. The whole chapter is about Babylon. I'm just going to read the last few, uh, starting at verse 19 down through verse 22. So this is Isaiah 13, starting at verse 19. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown, notice this, by God. Now, who's going to overthrow Babylon in Revelation 18? It's the Lord. You're going to see it as we get through it. Babylon will be overthrown by God, like... Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're familiar with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going to see something very similar when we look at the destruction of Babylon. And then it says in verse 20, she will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. Now here, Isaiah is writing somewhere in the neighborhood of 700 B.C., and yet he, he sees forward to this time that Babylon is going to be destroyed. In fact, it's interesting how Isaiah predicts that the Medes will destroy Babylon before the Medes were even a world power. So, but he's looking even further here to the point when it will be completely uh, uninhabited and never to be inhabited again. And he's speaking of what John sees here in Revelation chapter 18. So um, it, that means Babylon needs to rise again before it's going to be destroyed. This is complete conjecture on my part, okay? Don't write this down as biblical fact, all right? This is just my speculation. But I wonder if Babylon the Great is both a system and a city in that it wouldn't surprise me if after the war or in response to the rebuilding following uh, the war that the UN gets behind the rebuilding of Babylon into a world economic powerhouse. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised even if the UN eventually relocated their headquarters from New York City to Babylon. It just wouldn't surprise me. If that started in that direction, it just wouldn't surprise me. I'm not predicting it. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me if once again Babylon is rebuilt and um, it becomes the economic center for the world economic system. Because there's too many references here to Babylon as the city, the city, again, four times, to make us think that it's only a system. It really seems to be suggesting here that it is that literal city of Babylon that will be rebuilt and revived, and it's going to become this economic powerhouse, the center of the world economic system. But it's going to be overpowered. It's going to be destroyed by the Lord. So, with all that said, let's look here into chapter 18. Uh, starting at verse 1. John says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. Now some, by the way, will will tell you that this is Jesus. I don't believe it's Jesus at all. This is another angel, alos, meaning another of the same kind. And so this is a reference to the continuing theme of angels who are announcing different things. And, but the fact that he is illuminated by 
uh, the splendor of the Lord suggests that he probably comes from the very presence of God. And with a mighty voice he shouted, verse 2, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And, and by the way, you'll notice that this is repeated, fallen, fallen. It's twice because it probably suggests the fall of the spiritual Babylon of chapter 17 and now the fall of the economic Babylon of chapter 18. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So what we're going to see here happening is, is that there's this even demonic presence that is involved in this whole greedy uh, commercial enterprise of this world uh, government and world uh, economic power. That the, the demons are here, the, uh, a haunt for every evil spirit, nations have drunk the maddening wine of adulteries, that nations are going to be intoxicated. And we all know this. You don't know, look, I got a C in economics in college, okay? But I'm bright enough to figure this one out. Money does maddening things to people. Money does maddening things to people. It makes a terrible master, makes a wonderful servant. God has given you money. You can use it as a wonderful servant to be a part of furthering his kingdom or blessing people or, you know, using your financial abilities to, to do great things for the kingdom makes a wonderful servant, makes a terrible master. And money can do maddening things. And the nations are going to become intoxicated. They're going to be drawn to whatever benefits them economically and they're going to become a part of this world economic system. It's happening now as global economies are linked together. Verse 4 says, Then I heard another voice from heaven. Now, this is going to be the Lord's voice here. Because he's going to refer to, how do we know? Next sentence, come out of her, my people. See, only the Lord is going to refer to his people as his people. So he's speaking now of believers. And he is admonishing his people to come out of Babylon. And he says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Now, here are the reasons he's calling believers out of Babylon. Number one, so that you will not share in her sins. And what are her sins? Or we're going to see it spelled out here as we go on. And then number two, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. And once again, we just see evidence here where God wants to rescue the righteous. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, just real quickly, people will, Christians will be taken from the earth during the rapture, but that doesn't mean that those left behind are unable to get saved. People left behind can still become believers in Christ, and in fact... Many do, and we see that recorded through the book of Revelation. And so what this tells us is there will be Christians who will be living in this city, in this center of economic world power, but God's going to bring destruction upon the city and the system. He's going, to, he's going to destroy this world government and this world economic system, and He's urging believers, get out. So He's always got His children's best interest at heart. Again, he rescues the, right, the righteous in Lot's day. He rescues the righteous in Noah's day. He's going to rescue the righteous in the day when the Son of Man comes again. And even here, he's wanting to rescue the righteous. Get out of Babylon so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Verse 5, for her sins are piled up to heaven. Now, this is probably a play on words here. Because as the Tower of Babel rose up to heaven, 
you know, they endeavored originally in Babylon to reach the starry host, that they would exalt themselves, make a name for themselves, it tells us in Genesis, and that they might worship the starry host. And so now they were unsuccessful in doing that. But God says, but her sins are piled up high to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. Verse 6, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Now notice this, next sentence. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen, I am not a widow, and I will never mourn. And so we can begin to see, what is it that God has against this world economic system? What He has against it, basically, in, in a sentence or two, is that mankind has replaced His love for God and he instead loves material things. And it's the pride of his heart that is completely enthralled with materialism. And so this economic system, pride rises up in her heart. She boasts, I sit as queen. Or, you know, I, I have no need of anything. You know, all I need is what I own, what I possess, is the money that I've made. I, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. You know, money is the ultimate supreme thing. And this is a statement against the ambition of man's heart to always think that the greatest aim in life is material possession, is materialism. Now, I will add this. I don't agree with this. I will add this, though. Some who, who have read about Babylon the Great believe that it might be a reference to America. And the reason that they believe that is because of the many references to greed and commercialization and, you know, just... The, just the ambition and, you know, of course, you know, with the United States being the world powerhouse that it is today, not only, not only in terms of military power, at least for now, and, uh, but also in terms of economic power, as weak as it is. Um, and some believe that some of this language refers to the greed and the commercialization of the American culture. Uh, there is some truth to that, although I don't think... Personally, that Babylon the Great is America. Uh, but I do believe that we have to guard our hearts against the potential that covetousness has, especially in America, where we have everything at our disposal. Do you know that there are now more um, shopping malls in America than there are schools? What does that say about commercialism and covetousness? We spend more on shoes and uh, a perfume than we do on higher education in America. So there is a reflection. Oh, and I also read this statistic. Advertising geared towards children from 1980 to 2004. In 1980, it was roughly $100 million that was spent in the United States in commercial advertising geared towards children in 1980. But by 2004... That number had risen from $100 million commercial advertising geared towards children to $15 billion in roughly 24 years. $100 million to $15 billion spent in the United States in advertising geared, geared towards children. Why? Well, because advertisers have realized that if they get into the heart of the kid, the kid will pull on the, on the purse strings of mom or dad, and so they feed the, the shopping industry and the economy, because what children want, what children get if they just bark loud enough and long enough. Just, I want, I want, I want, me, mine, me, mine. 
And this is, let me, let me just preface this next remark by saying, again, God has nothing against success. He has nothing against entrepreneurship. He has nothing against capitalism. We as Christians need to be good stewards of it, and we need to be careful how we use it. But, you know, every once in a while, when I take my kids to school, my kids go to county high school, I'm amazed. I am amazed at the number of Mercedes and BMWs and Saabs and Audis that our kids drive to high school. And I look around the parking lot and I go, wow, either these kids are wise investors with gold <laughs> or mom and daddy are just like, you know, spoon feeding them. And I'm, I just begin to think, what, what does that... And I don't, I don't mean to... Be, I don't want anybody leaving here guilty because, oh, great, you know, maybe you saw my kid drive my Beamer into school. I don't know who you are. I'm not trying to shame anybody. I'm just saying from a, a personal observation, it just causes me to wonder, what are we creating in the hearts of our kids? They didn't earn that Beamer, but now they're driving it. You know, what are we teaching them about a hard work ethic in America anymore? Is it none? Is it, right? Is it just be, stuff's just given to them? And what they want, they get. And this, you know, this sense of I'm entitled and, uh, and, you know, what I want and wants, you know, needs have become very blurred, the line of it, between needs and greeds. And so, you know, I think we have to be very careful of, you know, what we're even teaching the next generation in terms of you don't necessarily have to earn it. We'll just give it to you. And, and so, you know, certainly when we think about the sins of Babylon, whatever in the end this might be, we as Americans had better guard our heart against greed and covetousness. Amen? And if God has blessed us and given us the resources, then we need to be the most generous, the, the most generous and the most benevolent with what God has given us because then it frees us from that sense of me and mine when we... When we have our hands clutched to it, but when we're generous with it, then how God is blessed and honored and the kingdom is... Anyway, you, you know where I'm going with that and, and the point I'm making with it, and, and, but as I read Babylon, I'm just convicted, you know, Lord, don't, you know, let us enjoy what you've given us, but let us never get to the place where greed has settled in our own hearts and, and we don't even know the difference. We don't even know the difference. And so here's his indictment against Babylon. Keep reading on verse 8. Therefore... In one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Verse 9. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her, they, they, you know, in, in a, they compromised economically, and so they're a part of this whole system. So they're, you know, they're sleeping with this economic system. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means one hour, although it could because if the Lord overthrows her, how long is it going to take? But it may just mean in terms of very quickly. It's going to happen very rapidly. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth, now we move from the kings to now the merchants. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, 
Listen to this list of assets and commodities. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. In other words, at the heart of this whole thing is the battle over the souls of humanity. That there's this great list of assets and commodities, but at the heart of this is a battle over bodies, over lives, and the souls of men. And so the merchants lament. You know, they see, they begin to realize the impact that the Lord is destroying the system and they've become so in love and so intoxicated with this economic system, they are lamenting. Notice verse 14. They will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. And glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. How quickly can an economic system crumble? I mean, in an hour, in an instant, in a day. Every sea captain, now we move from kings to merchants, so we've gone from, you know, the leaders, then to the merchants, and now to the vendors themselves every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Now, I want you to notice this. What are they lamenting over? They're not lamenting over their sin. They're lamenting over their wallets. It's another indication of where their heart is. And Jesus talked about that. Laying up treasures for yourselves in heaven rather than on earth. Where moth and rust destroy. Where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, you know, how we spend our money is an indication of where our heart really is and, and what we're in love with. And, and they're lamenting that their, their wallets are now hurting and, and the economy has come to an end. They're not, they're not lamenting over their own sin. They're not broken over their own hearts. Now, there's a shift here in verse 20, and the shift is now that there's, there's rejoicing in heaven now. Now, John is going to write about this part about rejoicing in heaven, starting at verse 20. He says, Rejoice over her, O heaven! Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. You know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so God is going to... All the mistreatment of this world false religious system and this world economic system and the way that it has brought injustice upon God's people on the earth, God will will bring uh, justice to bear. 
And so he's going to judge her for the way that she has treated his saints. In verse 21, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Notice what's missing. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell... All the nations were led astray. Now, that's an interesting word. Magic spell. King James says, by your sorceries. It's the Greek word pharmakia. It's where we get our English word pharmacy. It really speaks of drugs. It speaks of even that aspect of our culture. Even, you know, the, the, uh, the illusion that's created through, through drugs. And so, King James calls it sorceries. But it's pharmakia. It's, it's pharmacy. It's drugs. Verse 24, in her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. Let me, let me finish up by reading out of 1 John. Turn to 1 John. Just go back to the left. A couple of little books. 1 John chapter 2. This is just a good reminder for us all as we read about this whole Babylon economic system, the world and the love of the things of this world, materialism, pride, arrogance. 1 John 2, verse 15. This is just a good reminder to us. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man, the woman, anybody who does the will of God lives forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts can grow heavy when we think about destruction and Babylon the Great, the prostitute who rides the beast. What do all these things mean, Lord? We, we can only try to study and show ourselves approved, but we don't know all things. You do. You've given us these things in your word that we might be prepared, that we might understand. We do pray for hearts and minds that understand these things that somewhat seem like mystery. But yet, Lord... We know this much, that whatever all these details actually represent, we've done the best we can to dig out your word tonight. But clearly, it, it represents something of a, world, of a worldly nature. A worldly religious system. A worldly economic system. Babylon the Great. Will one day fall. You will destroy it, Lord. It's our desire... That we would be people who would not love the world or the things of this world. But we would have our affections set on above. 
set on you, the things of heaven, that we'd be good stewards with all the treasures you've given us on this earth, but that ultimately our greatest treasure is the reward of heaven. It's of knowing you and of making you known for as long as we live on this earth. We pray, Father, for hearts that are not pulled in to the covetousness and the materialism of this world, but that we would live lives that are in love with you more than anything we own, more than anything we possess. May our affections and our joys, may our future and our treasures be laid up in heaven. We're only passing through this world, Lord. And Babylon represents a real worldly thing. And it's our prayer tonight that as men and women and young people who love you, that our affections would be set on things above, not on things on this earth. That we love you, Lord, and we praise you for who you are and for the kingdom that you've provided for us through what you've done on the cross. Never let our hearts go after the things of this world. Never, Lord, let our hearts, by your Spirit, give us hearts that are always faithful and loyal to you and never sucked into the things of this world. Let us live in this world, be good stewards of all that you've given in this world, manage your money well, live out our lives well for your glory, but never let us set our affection on things of this world, but only on you. And we praise you and we thank you and we worship you and we magnify you in this place tonight. You are the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You are Jesus. And it's in your name we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen and Amen. If you want to know Christ as your Savior or you need prayer for anything, the pastors linger down front, so just come and seek us out after the service. God bless you. Have a great night. You are dismissed. Read ahead. We'll be in Revelation 19 next week.